Welcome to the Proletarian Contrarian, the podcast where we reevaluate bad films through a leftist perspective. I'm Nick. And I'm Lewis. And we have a friend here with us today. We're uh, still going through guest month here. Um, and I'm proud to introduce Coop to ProCon. Hey, Cooper. How's it going? Very nice to be on the podcast. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, Cooper has his own podcast, which he'll he'll describe in a second. But um, the movie we're doing today is it's it's pretty infamous, I guess, um, and it's one that Lewis <laughs> hadn't seen. Yes, first time for me, folks. <laughs> yeah, um, we're doing Dune, the 1984 David Lynch version, kind of in preparation of the of the new one that's coming out next year. But more just because Cooper and I are are Dune heads, spice addicts. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're fremen. So it's obviously based on the book by Frank Herbert, um, in stars Kyle MacLellan, Francesca Annis, Brad Dorif, Jurgen Prochnow, Dean Stockwell, Patrick Stewart, Jose Farrar, Linda Hunt, Everett McGill, Kenneth Kenneth McMillan, Sean Phillips, Max von Sydow, Jack Nance, Freddie Jones. Richard Jordan, Sean Young, and of course, Sting. Coop, um, you're the guest for today. Do you want to plug your show? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the name of my podcast is Unceremoniously Podcast, in quotation marks, <laughs> Care of Cooper Cherry. And so it's kind of a play on the uh, brand Off-White. And I don't know if you are familiar with them, but it's kind of a high-end streetwear brand. But I'm super into postmodern modernism, rather, and... Uh, I really like that kind of aesthetic, so I kind of co-opted it for the podcast. I didn't know that there was like a clothing line associated with your show. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm stealing their aesthetic. Oh, yeah, hell yeah. More than anything, because it kind of, like I said, it's sort of a postmodern thing in kind of calling out the, I don't know, the arbitrariness of the title itself is kind of the idea behind it. Yeah, you've had uh, quite a few leftist, dirtbag left Twitter people on, um, myself included. <laughs> But um, but yeah, it's a good show. Everyone check it out. We'll definitely have a link to that in the show notes. I've uh, listened to the episode uh, that you two uh, did together. Uh, good stuff. Uh, I just thought like with the title, I was like, oh, I guess uh, Cooper just wants no one to be able to find his podcast ever. I know, right? Yeah, I didn't <laughs> think about that until after the fact. <laughs> Although if people search for podcast on Google... Like maybe yours could be the first one that shows up <laughs> if it gets big enough. Yeah, you got to get that those SEOs going. <laughs> uh, so Coop, go into your politics a little bit. Um, how would you identify politically? Maybe give a brief overview of what brought you there um, to your place on the left, and then we can just go into Dune from there. Okay. So I think my place on the left started with, or my journey to the left came through philosophy and primarily the uh, postmodern, post-structuralist thinkers. Um, Michel Foucault was a big influence on me, uh, Jacques Derrida, and sort of deconstructing a lot of the you know, underlying values and assumptions within Western society, Western philosophy, culture, obviously, and then kind of deconstructing a lot of the relationships within society, uh, within power, capitalism, etc. So that's kind of what kind of my basis was. But then I think right around 2016, I started to get, I don't know, more engaged with politics again, because kind of after 2008, I kind of retreated from it for 
you know, a good eight years or so just because. So instead of hope, there was despair. Yes, I mean, totally. After Obama's promise kind of became apparent that he wasn't going to be able to live up to what I was hoping for, even before the election, I just became pretty disillusioned and kind of retreated from it all. But then along came Trump and this whole phenomenon, and I've always been a big Redditor and actually <laughs> got kind of radicalized a lot through the late-stage capitalism subreddit. Yes, that's a good nice. read. It's a depressing <laughs> read, but it's a good read. The memes on there, just they had some really good breakdowns of capitalism and arguments, and so that kind of got me thinking again. And then, uh, you know, I was always, I think, kind of an anarchist, but I think now firmly I would say that I'm anarcho-communist with some kind of post-left affinities or even egoist anarchist, uh, you know, affinities as well. Cool. Yeah, so it was memes, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and what's your association with the Dune fandom? What, when did you first encounter Dune? So I believe that the Alan Smithy cut for TV aired in something like 1988. So I saw it. I was like six years old at the time. Of this movie. Yes, of this movie. So there's some additional footage, and it aired over like a two-part, like two nights. And I just fell in love with it. I mean, it's six years old, you know. <laughs> I was like in kindergarten. Yeah. So the monomyth elements of it, the weird, <laughs> crazy, like sci-fi stuff, the visuals, I mean... I was just immersed. I was all I was all for it. And you've read all the books. I have read all the books up to God Emperor, which I had started multiple times but never finished. Okay. That's that's more than I've read. I've only read the first two. And Lewis, of course, is the Dune noob. I have no idea how many books there are at all. Like <laughs> there are six that Herbert himself wrote, and then there's a couple that his son and Kevin J. Anderson collaborated on, but they're very unpopular. Okay, cool. I know that someone turns into a worm at some point. That's like all I know. Yeah, spoiler alert, but I guess it's a 20-year-old book, 20, 30-year-old book series. I mean, that's a great part of one of the books. <laughs> I mean... It's like my favorite part of Children of Dune. If we're going mask off on spoilers. I, I, we're mask off on spoilers, by the way. Oh, yeah, that, oh, yeah. we should have put that in the beginning. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll probably never. edit something in. No, no, no never. never. Um, Folks, if you're listening to our podcast and you're pro spoilers, you can log off. Thank you. <laughs> you have to be, you have to be pro con, pro pro contrarian. That's it. Um, we do have a review from Janet Maslin of the New York Times. So I just took a few sections from this review. Um, a lot of it is pretty plot heavy. Uh, a lot of it, she just kind of describes the plot and says, "Wow, that's crazy." Um, so. There's a portion where she is describing the plot, um, kind of the the, the different uh, warring factions and such, the spice mining, and then she says, uh, that ought to be more than enough to fill a movie, but it's presented here much too solemnly to leave room for the wit or agility that could have made it fun. Uh, and then the next paragraph goes, uh, the tale is played out by a large, reputable, and unglamorous international cast, hardly what was needed to lend the film personality. Actors do what they're expected of them, but no one here contributes any real flair. Everyone is upstaged by the dialogue, decor, and fussily attention-getting costumes of the sort that just might be remembered at Oscar time. That's bullshit, because the costumes are one of the best aspects of this movie. Yeah, and so I think 
I think she would agree with you there. I think that's what she's saying. Yeah, so she so she's kind of saying that it's hiding behind the production. Then as we get into the next paragraph, I think that is more or less what she's trying to say. Um, okay. Meslin continues, There are no traces of Mr. Lynch's elephant man in Dune, but the ghoulishness of his eraser head shows up in the ooze and gore distinguishing many of the story's heavies. Diehard fans of Mr. Herbert's novels may not mind this or anything else about the movie, but its appeal to neophytes is distinctly limited. Some of the special effects, like the glowing blue eyes on Dune's native faction called Fremen, are unusual. There's a nice worm fight at the end of the story. The music, by Toto and Brian Eno, is intermittently effective. But too many of the fancier touches backfire, like the water-saving still suits with their black nose pieces, designed to enable people on the bone-dry Dune to preserve their body fluids. These outfits ought, ought to pique the audience's curiosity. Instead, they have the reverse effect of making anyone who wears one, man, woman, or child, look vaguely like Macrocho marks. <laughs> I can see that. There, there's one or two um, of the Fremen extras in the background who look kind of goofy. Um, yeah. Actually, the la- so the last sentence is the thing I disagree with her most on. I actually really like the still suits, and I know a lot of people, like... They, they like to mock them. I've seen plenty of stuff uh, online mm-hmm. saying how silly they are, especially in the film, but I, I really don't mind them. I think they're a sleek design. Um, I think they mm-hmm. work. I think maybe, you know, having to describe the functionality of them um, in just like this one shot, um, you know, five to six lines of dialogue, that's a bit too much for a lot of people uh, in the audience, but I, I didn't mind it. Like, it was kind of cool. I guess that's my biggest question for you, Lewis, um, as one of the aforementioned neophytes to the <laughs> Dune lore. Like, did did you did you get lost in in the names and the terminology, or could you follow along? For the most part, I was able to follow along. Um, there were a few names that sounded exactly the same to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just said in rapid succession, like they made no sense. But then later, as they kind of explained a little bit more, and as I saw the story just play out, I, I, I finally like understood like the um, the chosen one, whatever the word for that is. And then the other, it's uh, it's Coop's Twitter handle, uh, Moadib. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, the other word. It's like uh, it's that like, hey. yes, that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, that. And then some other thing, the Jezzard, Ben Jezzard or something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I finally understood all those things. But like in the first maybe 30 minutes of the film, they say it in rapid succession and I just, it made no sense to me. It it can be a lot um, to just be thrown into it. I don't think it gets lost in all the names and everything, but um, if if you're not paying attention and if you don't know the names, it it, it can be a little much. Yeah. Yeah. But... um, no, I mean that didn't really that didn't really take me out of it. I mean, I'm I, I'm not familiar with Dune, but I'm familiar enough with sci-fi and uh, uh, like like Cooper said, monomyth and stuff like that. So like, you know, I I know the iconography. I, I know you know the, how that works. So sure. So Coop, um, the Fremen are they the ideal the idealized um, ancom society that we need to transition into as the water wars start up in. 10 years i don't know i feel like there may be more like anarcho syndicalists because i felt like there was still some type of a hierarchy within the fremen culture there definitely is mm, um yeah still gar he's still the chief right? exactly yeah so 
I think there's that element, but there is sort of this anti-colonial critique, I think, that is a big, big part of the film. And I think that, you know, sort of the metaphor for Dune is sort of the Middle East with the oil Mm -hmm. extraction. And that's a clear thing that I think Herbert wasn't going for in the books. You think he wasn't going? No, for I think that? he absolutely. Yeah, okay, was. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, that's very. I mean, they it. say the word jihad in the movie, and I was like, ah, yeah, I <laughs> right? Get it now. Yeah, canceled. <laughs> <laughs> One of the cool things in the books that was pretty much absent from the movie is the in, the heavy influence of religion. Um, there, there are these various syncretic religions, like there, there's Zen Sunni um, Islam, and there's uh, there's like some fusion of like Mahayana Christianity. Um, there, there are different sects of like Judaism, Islam, uh, Buddhism, Catholicism that all kind of blend into each other um, very overtly. So that, that's, that's always lent the series this like air of legitimacy for me with my, my weird Tradcath background. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the idea that like, oh, it's, it's weird sci-fi religions, but they're still rooted in what we have today. Yeah, I guess I was expecting that because, I mean, you and I have discussed this book before, not so much the movie, but you've discussed Dune with me, and I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting, you know, these these um, somewhat sci-fi uh, religions, but, you know, these, these real-world um, touchstones, uh, but yeah, that was totally missing from this film, it's a very secular film. Yeah, and even the spirituality within the universe, too... Um it mostly comes across in surreal, I guess, like just imagery, like voiceless imagery that when, when Paul has his, his visions and everything, I guess the, the, the water of life concept is, is introduced pretty heavy, is like pretty overtly. There's also in the books, the orange Catholic Bible. Yes. That's that little tiny Bible. It, it's like this tiny, tiny book. And to move the, like to, to read it, you need a microscope. Um, and that's where a lot of the book's famous aphorisms come from, many of which are in the movie, um, in, in the voiceover aspects. And um, that's actually a good transition into one of the things, not that I disliked about the movie, but I, I'm, I'm still kind of split on, there's a lot of voiceover in this movie with, with specific lines of dialogue from the book and, and some of the aphorisms from the book. Yeah, it's weird because it's, so there's actual voiceover in the beginning of the film done by the princess, I forget her name. Aurelian. Yeah, and then throughout we have her voiceover, but then we have kind of like the inner thoughts of characters that we can yes. hear. And yeah, I actually don't mind that. I'm I'm okay with it. I like the voiceover with the introduction, um, with more plot-heavy things like that. It, it's it, it's just there's certain sequences like, um, oh, there's one part where Jessica is looking at the doctor and he looks nervous, and she says something to herself like, <laughs> oh, yeah. he looks nervous. It's just... that, okay, that was the one that took me out. That was fucking atrocious, yeah. but <laughs> I didn't mind for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Cooper is a, is a voiceover stan for movies. He was just telling that, that to us. Yeah, Apocalypse Now, I'm thinking of. What else? Uh, Memento. Right, okay, yeah, I haven't seen Memento. Yeah, but, um, definitely. Yeah, I don't think it's a bad device. It's just, it's tricky to do. And when the voiceover mirrors what's on screen deliberately, I find that kind of yeah. eye roll worthy. Yeah, there was a few clunky points with it. And I think specifically, I remember one where Alio said, my brother's coming, Baron, like twice. Yes. twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was in this internal monologue, like she was communicating with them te- telepathically. Yeah, she was 
voicing in his head, I think. Right, yeah. Is she one of the only characters who did that throughout the film, or did the Reverend Mother, could she also communicate telepathically? All of the Bene Gesserit can. Um, okay. it's, it's one of their skills they can do. Okay, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, and yet the other big thing, the only other big thing that I didn't like that stood out to me were the fight scenes. Um, it's just people running. Yeah, <laughs> just people right. running with, with yeah. effects blowing up around them. Um, very little actual fighting. And, and the book does go into heavy detail um, on how violent the Fremen and the Sadakar are and the way they fight. So that's a little bit disappointing from, from a fan perspective. Do you want to go into anything about the training or the the planet that the, the Sardaukara emerged from? What about the Giddy Prime? Well, no, no, no. That's uh, that's Harkonnens, but it's called, I think, Sekula so, Secundus or Sekula something? Secundus, that's it. So they're, they're on this, like, hell planet, basically. Yes. And it's like a only the strongest survive sort of thing. It's like Mustafar from Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, Star Wars. Okay. Wait, is that in the movie? No, it's completely absent from the movie. Okay, I was like, I don't remember a lot of planet. <laughs> we're going off on, a, we're this... going off on like the the lore tangent here. Well, I think it kind okay, of helps fill in, like, fine. okay, fifty legions of Sardaukar. That is heavy. That's heavy. Right. The the Sardaukar is supposed to be, they're basically the Imperial U.S. Army. Like that. Like that's that's their function in the story. Like the Marines, special forces. Wait, are they in the movie? Yes. Kind of, okay. yeah, they are, but they they they're really indi- they're really nondescript looking. They're the ones that wear. It's like a hazmat. Yeah, it's like a black hazmat. So. Oh, okay. I was wondering who with those the guys green, were. green lighting. Yep. Yeah, the Harkonnen like soldiers. No, the Sardaukar soldiers, and and that's one of the important political aspects of the movie because the emperor, um, kind of is doing a soft coup against the Atreides because he's supporting the Harkonnens. To fight the to fight okay, the yes mm-hmm. the Atreides, but he's but he's using imperial power to do so. He's like loaning them imperial oh, troops. I just assumed that there was those were Harkonnen soldiers, but I, I do yeah I do remember the whole soft coup portion in the beginning of the film, kind of one of the opening scenes, right? Okay, I just was I was confused who those guys were. There's a subtle visual clue because the Harkonnen soldiers do have a very similar costume, but they don't have that kind of clear like welder's mask. The way that right. the Harkonnens have that sort of gas mask, sort of apparatus, Mid, mids power, yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, that that's literally the only design choice in terms of the costumes that I didn't like. Um, everyone else is pretty, very appropriately Lynchian and weird and very baroque and gothic. Um, you didn't like the hazmat suit guys? Yeah, they're just kind of boring in comparison was, to everything else. Yeah, I mean they were yeah. I don't know. So were like the Atreides guys. Like they were just kind of like World War One, like Germans. Like that was kind of boring. Yeah, I think I think that works though because they're they're like the starting point of view faction. So like they're, yeah. they're kind of they kind of set the baseline. Right. Yeah. If like you're playing like Command and Conquer, like they're like yes. the the first one you play as, and you get to get the cool shit later. Yeah. Okay. I get that. But there were some interesting flourishes to their costumes like they had these button things on the back with like a huge hook like you could <laughs> yes. take them and hang them up on a hook after yeah battle. yeah exactly <laughs> that, was, that was neat 
Yeah, that was really pronounced, especially on Jurgen Prochnow, uh, uh, Duke Leto's, uh, his outfit. I was mm-hmm. like, what is, what is, what's up with that? But yeah. <laughs> it's cool. Uh, and if we're talking costumes, um, I think the standouts have to be the Benny Jesuit, just the Benny Jesuit witches, um, their shaved heads and their ridiculous kind of earmuff headdress. Yes. Mm hmm. It's very feminine, but also kind of sexless at the same time. Yeah, that's true. A- anytime I heard the Benny Jesuit, though, I just thought Benny Hill. Like, that was just, like, the first thing that came to mind. I just thought, like, the Benny Hill theme song. <laughs> well, I mean, the battles are basically Benny yeah, Hill. Yeah, <laughs> they basically are. <laughs> but actually, that's um, one of the things I liked about this film was how many pro-con alums there were in this in this movie. Yes. Um, so one of the Benny Jesuit, uh, Reverend Mother... Monaghan. Yeah, that one, um, played by Sean Phillips. She was uh, Cheryl from Ewoks Battle for Endor. She was the space witch. Damn, okay. Yeah. And that she, so she basically plays a Benny Jesuit in the Yeah, Ewok exactly, in the Ewok That's, movie. <laughs> um, and then And then Duncan Idaho was played by Richard Jordan, who yep. played the racist sheriff, Sheriff Bates, in Posse. Yes, okay. Yeah. The big bad, yep. basically. Yeah. And then Jurgen Prochnow was Captain Klaus Vermin from The Keep. He was like the German yes. uh, captain yes. who was like, I actually wish I fought for the anti-fascist in Spain. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. That's all I could I could find, though. I think those were the only three that were in previous films for us. Okay. No, it's pretty good. And um, But it's an incredible cast. I mean, really. It's a good cast. Um, I understand what Janet Maslin was saying where like kind of um, they're they're drowned out like their talents are somewhat drowned out and everything mm-hmm. and I, I sort of agree with that um, but like it's kind of cool just like every time you see like a new actor who you know on screen I'm like oh shit yeah. it's fucking Picard oh shit it's yep. this guy like I don't know that I got a lot of mileage out of that <laughs> Cooper literally said that about Max von Sydow when he showed up um, yeah even though he's seen it like a hundred times <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it is a good it is, it is a good reveal he is a good reveal. I actually kind of wish he was like the um, the emperor. Like yes. uh, Jose Ferrer is amazing, but like I kind of wish that like the emperor was Max von Sydow. I think that would have had a bit of, like more impact for me. But mm-hmm. it was still cool. They're they're still great actors. Or he could have been Baron Harkonnen. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know who that guy is. Actually, I don't know who that actor is. Um, Kenneth McMillan. Like I'm just, I'm not familiar with him. He's a British actor. He'd have to be a stage actor. Based I on would his performance. Yeah. yeah. Oh, geez. Just chewing all of Arrakis, literally. The Harkonnens are <laughs> delightfully insane and like just mustache trolling villainy. I laughed out loud when uh, Baron Harkonnen like floats for the first time. Yes. Um, so for for listeners who don't know anything about this, uh, Baron Harkonnen is like this this very rotund, uh, postural ridden uh, villain, uh, and like. He's getting this like work done on his weird face his in the pustules. first. Intru- yeah, his postules when we're introduced to him, and like he randomly just like f- levitates in the air with no explanation. My my wife, I was watching with my wife, and she she's read the book, and she was like, "Oh yeah, he's he's, he's apparently in the book, he's like way too fat and he can't walk at all, so he floats." <laughs> but I was like, "What the fuck is happening?" He yeah he has he has like an anti gravity belt because um he he's morbidly obese. And he just wants to zip around quickly. Yeah, he actually could have been more morbidly obese in the film. I was like, this guy could walk. 
Yeah, he's he's more fit and more normal than he's described in the books. Um, yeah. And, and that scene where he first floats is actually the scene where he rips the heart plug out of the servant in like a weird, violently sadistic sexual way. And when I, yeah. when I first saw this movie, when I was 12, I wasn't allowed to watch that part. <laughs> the adult who showed it to me, she's like, oh, oh, Nikki, just close your eyes for a little bit or like go in the other room until the scene's over. That's amazing. Yes. And I'm over here watching wow. this shit at six years old. Exactly. It explains a lot, right? <laughs> it does explain a lot. <laughs> yeah. I guess like the only thing I really didn't like about the Baron Harkonnen character is like he's pretty obviously queer coded like he's yes. a queer coded villain it, um, it, more more explicitly so in the book really yeah not not overtly but like he i remember there's a part where he where he does lust after his nephew fade okay lovely fade yeah yes lovely fade to be fair he is, he mean, is lovely he's sting because <laughs> <laughs> later he lusts after sting yeah yeah that, that's, what, that's what i'm saying that's, he, he lusts that's after fade. his nephew yeah right or oh that's right he does say that later in the in the movie he does call yeah. him lovely yeah um yeah and oh it's his nephew they don't say that in the movie yeah um raban and fade the the harkonnen lackeys are the nephew of the baron nepotism shit yeah it's nepo- nepotism in action damn that's fucked up yeah it's he's <laughs> herbert um that that aspect is a part of the book. It's it's not super pronounced, but it's it's undeniably there. Yeah, I'm surprised David Lynch like shied away from that. I feel like that's like extremely his shit, like incest. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah, it is <laughs> for sure. Um, I think he was more interested with the Guild Navigator um model. The the floating, yeah. yeah. He was, and it was pretty great. So I don't understand that thing at all. Like, can you explain, can either of you explain that thing to me? It was really cool, but I didn't understand it at all. Coop, is that a person that was mutated by the spice? Yes. I don't remember the mechanism or, like, the... I mean, I guess she does, Irulan, Irulan rather, like, kind of briefly mentions they've been mutated over thousands of years, but I don't know how faithful that is to the actual book canon and evolution of the, the, of the guild navigators themselves. One of the interesting aspects about the Dune universe is that the only sentient uh, creatures in the entire universe are humans. There are other, like, otherworldly aliens, like, like the worms, obviously, but um, everyone that can think and, and is cognizant of, of their consciousness is a human. Um, so the, these giant mutated Jabba the Hutt um, space navigators who use, the psychic, the, who use their psychic powers that are, have been unlocked by the spice to navigate light years um they're just mutated people oh okay gotcha and they the reason the spice which is only found on arrakis the dune planet is so important is because it allows um interstellar travel It, it gives prescience it expands consciousness um but strictly from a capitalist perspective um, what it what it does is it allows the navigators to enable interstellar interstellar trade or travel for trade. Gotcha, gotcha. And to that point, actually, they don't they bar- briefly mention it maybe once the Chom Company, yes. which is basically this. It's a monopoly. Yeah, and all the major houses within the aristocracy have like shares and like 
seats on the board of directors, essentially. Yeah, I think Chome is the company that refines and distributes the spice to the to the different houses. Yeah, I do remember the the singular mention of Chome, and I was like, I feel like this is a bigger thing than they're letting on, but okay. Chome Nomsky. <laughs> <laughs> Episode title. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess brief plot rundown, because this, this is a pretty Byzantine plot. Um, there are the aforementioned Atreides and Harkonnen houses in the year 10,000, whatever, in the future. Um, they are two of the most powerful houses underneath the emperor, the Padishah emperor that we, that we were discussing earlier. Um, and House Harkonnen, who owned or had sovereignty over the planet Arrakis, which is the only planet where the, the spice is found, is, are, they're, they're being moved away in a plot by the emperor for the Atreides to come in and take over spice production. Um, but that's a trap. So the emperor can consolidate uh, spice production and distribution. And take out his political rival, the duke. Yes. They mentioned that, that the duke um, is gaining in popularity. And in the ensuing betrayal, when the Atreides are basically destroyed or killed off, um, Paul and his mother, Jessica, who's a Bene Gesserit, I guess witch is kind of a derogatory term, but Bene Gesserit... Um, sister. Sister, yes. Uh, escape to the desert, and they meet the native people there, the Fremen, who are so in tune with the planet and in tune with the spice that their eyes constantly glow blue, um, which is a sign of spice. And they team up with the Fremen, and they over they entrap the emperor on Arrakis and overthrow him and kill all the Harkonnens. So it's kind of a white savior um, narrative. But what's interesting is like the, the book series is a direct inversion of that white savior narrative. Okay, because I got a lot of white savior vibes from the movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the book is a little different? The series is different because, again, spoiler alert, but we're if you're in this deep, you're committed. Um, Paul becomes the head of a genocidal cult that practices like this jihad across the universe and he hates what it becomes he he abandons it and renounces everything and he wanders off into the desert okay and and that's like book that's only what happens in book two and that's as far as i'm as but um the point is that it's it becomes this monolithic like death cult centered around moadib there's a throwaway line that really underscores this, and I think this is really the best metaphor for the entire kind of idea. Um, whenever Paul's name become like Mudai becomes a killing word, yes. that's what it's going at, right. is the killing word is this whole cult situation that evolves, the jihad. Yeah, so the, this movie in isolation, it, it's definitely a white savior narrative, and... Um, a lot of I, th- I think that's something that is alighted with with the removal of a lot of the religious elements um, because the Fremen overtly go on a jihad in the book in the name of Moadib. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, yeah. And the I think they're all coming together now. There, there is this quote by Herbert. Um, While Nick looks up this quote, we'll sit down and have a we're here for my sponsors today. <laughs> Spice melange. The spiciest melange you've ever had. (laughs) This is good. This is staying in. Yeah, actually, this will stay in now. (laughs) I'll just fucking sit here and record so many different ones. Chome Company, get your loans today. (laughs) 
I wanted to mention a little bit about, because we talked about the Baron and the actor, and I want to get your opinion, Lewis. He was, like I said, he was chewing up Arrakis with his acting, but for the most part, yes. it didn't bother me. There was only in a few sort of parts that I kind of cringed, but other than that, I kind of dug it overall. Yeah, I, I would say like he's one of the few actors in this film that's like allowed to act really, you know, um, allowed to be more of a character, um, allowed to emote. Whereas like Kyle MacLachlan, um, who plays Paul Atreides, the you know uh, aforementioned semi-white savior of this film, um, I, I like I don't know. He just he's just really reading the lines. Um, that's you know I, I don't I don't feel as if he goes above and beyond in this film whereas Kyle McLaughlin you know he he's a, a David Lynch regular um, the main character or one of the main characters in Twin Peaks uh, Dale um, the uh, FBI agent Dale uh, in, incredible performances overall in all David Lynch um, ventures but in this one I just he felt fairly stilted in his acting. Um, it was actually his uh, big screen debut. Was this movie? Yes. Jesus Christ. I'm glad he was able to, like, you know, continue in yes. his career because, I mean, he has some incredible performances. Blue Velvet, mm -hmm. um, again, Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks, and then shout out uh, Paul Verhoeven's... Um, the Flintstones. Jesus Christ. He was the villain no, in The Flintstones. What? Was he the villains in the film? He was the CEO no. of of the company that Fred yes. Flintstone worked for. That's Show, right. Showgirls. Showgirls. Yes. Of yes. course. I don't know how I could forget that. Yeah. So I mean, he he also was in Showgirls. Did you find that quote? Okay. Yeah. I have the I have this very relevant quote here from Herbert, um, Frank Herbert, the author of Dune. He writes, "Who? What?" <laughs> It is demonstrable that power structures tend to attract people who want power for the sake of power, and that a significant proportion of such people are imbalanced, in a word, insane. Heroes are painful. Superheroes are a catastrophe. The mistakes of superheroes involve too many of us in disaster. Which, if, if you read the series as a whole, as a criticism of the concept of heroism, um, that, that through line follows very much throughout all the books, at least as far as I've read. Uh, and that doesn't come across in this movie. <laughs> well, it's my understanding that, so Dino De Laurentiis, who produced the film, a uh, famous Italian producer, I mean, had been producing films since like the 1950s, I believe. Um, he, he expected to make three films. A lot of the actors and actresses were signed on for a three-picture deal. But since okay. this movie was made for $40 million and a box office pull of $30 million, um, they canceled everybody's contract. And uh, and obviously, you know, we're living in a world where there's only one Dune movie. Well, there's two Dune movies, but one Dune uh, by by David Lynch and Dino De Laurentiis. Mm -hmm. So maybe that would play out in the, in the, in the two sequels. I'm sure they were maybe expecting to do so. Interesting. Um, but you know, we we don't live in that continuity, <laughs> that timeline. <laughs> yeah, we need the spice to be able to have a conception of that timeline. <laughs> um. Another very relevant aspect to this series is uh, how much it impacted Star Wars. Um, it's very pronounced with everything from the weirding way and the voice becoming the Force. Um, the planet Dune itself is a direct inspiration for Tatooine, I think. 
um, a lot of the sci-fi vocabulary that was established here um, was picked up by Star Wars, even though Star Wars is quite different in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that directly, once we get to God Emperor, that is a Jabba the Hutt direct yes. correlate. The one that turns into the worm, Lewis. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, it's interesting because I was reading that um, before, you know, those contracts were canceled, Dano, Dino De Laurentiis or one of the other producers um, for his company told a lot of the actors, we're making the Star Wars trilogy, but for adults. That was Whoa. like their idea. Okay. Yeah. And then that, that didn't happen. <laughs> no, it did not happen. Um, I am interested in the upcoming uh, Denis Villeneuve adaptation because that's going to be in two parts um so when coop said that he first saw this movie as a kid um over the course of two nights um right yeah the, the movie is kind of bifurcated it it has like all this political intrigue in establishing the universe um rap until the betrayal of um by, by the atreides doctor um when he betrays the atreides to the harkonnens and the emperor uh and then paul and jessica meet the fremen and become involved in their way of life that, that those, those are kind of two separate movies, or two, two, a natural break where there would be two separate movies. There's also the the Dune miniseries from 2000. I believe there was more than one. Yeah, there was a Children of Dune and a, I think the original Dune. We're doing live action uh, research, <laughs> keeping keeping <laughs> in our in our dirtbag aesthetic. Yeah, because there's the the William Hurt version. Well, maybe, I mean, maybe it's a continuation, but there was the 2000 version as William Hurt as Duke Leto Atreides. Okay. Oh, and that was another um, deep cut that I wanted to mention. A lot of the psychedelic vision sequences reminded me of Altered States, Lewis. Yes. Holy shit. The movie where William Hurt uh, takes takes drugs and goes into a sensory deprivation chamber and emerges as a troglodyte. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that energy running throughout this film. That's like going on 4chan. Yeah, basically. <laughs> basically, it, pre- <laughs> it presaged that, definitely. Uh, and then there's the 2003 miniseries. That's the Children of Dune miniseries. And that stars uh, Susan Sarandon as Princess Wessicia Carino. I don't know that character because I haven't gotten I don't know that character. Well, Carino is the emperor. Yeah, that's his house. Yeah. Yeah, and also important to note in the in the Dune real world um, history, there were I think two very popular real time strategy video games that expanded the mythos of Dune, um, but there were some of like the two very first real time strategy games as we know that genre today. Yeah, we have Dune, which came out in 1992, and Frank Herbert's Dune, which came out in 2001. But I'm thinking of the 92 version because it was like this very basic old school rts that um introduced i I think that kind of added to the series staying power among like nerds yeah there's another timeline where instead of young lewis playing world of warcraft 2 all the time or just warcraft 2 all the time um my first foray into real time strategy there's there's the alternate version where i'm playing the the dune uh rts game so one of this this is kind of my hot take um for the episode the the crappiness of the battle scenes where it's just people running in these long columns of like hundreds of extras um contrasted with the dialogue heavy connecting or 
the meat of the movie is just this scenes between characters that kind of reminded me of like old school sort uh sword and sandal movies um not necessarily ben-hur but something in that ilk where the better direction and the better dialogue and the better shots are reserved for the dramatic scenes in between the in between the quote-unquote battle scenes yeah, I can see that. Um, I mean, it's an unwitting style, if like if that <laughs> follows, but it it's there. Yeah, um, I'm thinking of there's a film. It was one of my grandfather's favorite films. He was really he was a fan of like really terrible um, like British colonial films, um, but there was Zulu. a film called No. It was before that, like well well before like the 50s 60s stuff. There were stuff in the 30s and 20s even. Um, there's a film called The Four Feathers, um, and it's also it takes place in Africa. I'm not sure if it's the Zulus, but it, it's some African tribe versus these British colonials, um, and it's a lot of the same kind of fight scenes in the desert. Like, yeah, just you know, extras, hundreds of extras rushing hundreds of extras, yep. and really, yeah, no. Um, there's there's like workmanship definitely in in that direction, but um, there's there's not a lot more than that there's not a lot of artistic merit to it but again like you said but between that there'd be these scenes of dialogue exposition that were really well constructed um so it did remind me of that i guess the film term um that you can introduce the audience to for this episode would be uh it's something cooper mentioned earlier alan smithy like an alan smithy cut of a film oh yeah yeah that's that's a good one um so Alan Smithy is a pseudonym that generally directors use, but I believe some screenwriters have used previously um, when there's a a re-edit or recut of their film that they um, have they totally disavow. Um, so the made for TV tonight version, I believe, is an Alan Smithy of yeah. of, of this film Dune. Um, I believe Michael Mann has um, disavowed some cuts of his film Heat. Okay. Uh, I think television versions of, of Heat have, are, are Alan Smithy. It's it's generally airplane and TV versions of films of, of more like auteur directors. They'll, they'll say Alan Smithy. Sure. That's almost kind of like a Dune concept, right? Like this invisible, non-existent, metaphysical sin eater for the artistic community they all like hang their failures on this non-existent person who has more of a presence than some, some like people in the, in the film world. Is that a reach? I have no idea because I know nothing about (laughs) that. That's fair. Um, so Coop, what's the postmodern read of Dune? Because we know the political read, um, different imperial powers vying for control of a limited resource against the native population. That's very apparent in Dune. Um, but with your background in postmodernism, what is there? I mean, in addition to the religious elements that I've mentioned earlier. I think that's kind of a tough angle to approach the film from. The only element that I think could perhaps be maybe referencing sort of a Deleuzian idea would be perhaps like the spice, the prescience, that element of it. Um, Because that kind of plays into this sort of ontological question 
that maybe something like a, I don't know, like a Spinoza, Barrick Spinoza, that Deleuze in particular would have referenced or kind of is building his thought on. And Spinoza was a, a monist where everything in the universe is, is one substance. And everything emanates from that, or as an expression of that one substance, which I think can also play into this idea of maybe a more deterministic universe, perhaps. Yeah, because I don't know if this really came across in the movie, but in the book, um, one of the things the spice grants you is knowledge of how limited your choices are, how limited your own actions are and how implicated they are by everything else that happens at the same time. Um, like, I remember Paul can literally see across the reverberations of his actions and others' actions on his own actions. And into other timelines, even. But also, I mean, in the film, it's kind of pointed at in his visions of Chani, and then when he actually meets her with the tell-me-of-your-home-world Usul line. He, he directly predicts that that will happen. Um and then again, he, he directly can see something that's already in motion uh, that when the Emperor comes to Arrakis. Yeah, so the postmodern question is, uh, this film doesn't really fit neatly into that. I'd really have to sit with it and kind of see what I could cobble together. But I don't know, maybe the Jalusian sort of idea would be the best or most applicable. Okay, so to the more easier question, the political read. <laughs> what's the what's the income read? I mean, you've got a lot of good things going on. We've got this sort of insurrectionary movement, movement with the Fremen, who are also like an anti-colonial movement. Um, so that's good. But Modib is almost like a Lenin sort of character here. Mm. And particularly in his strategy, he understands the economic choke points of the Imperium. Economic choke points. <laughs> 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 That's the title of the episode. <laughs> so I get hardcore Lenin vibes, at least from the film portrayal, and pointing out that from a strategic point of view. And again, I think that the Fremen themselves being some type of syndicalist, like they're not full ANCOM or something that I would be more comfortable with as a way of organizing things. So what is anarcho-syndicalism, Cooper? <laughs> I think... Anarcho-syndicalism is more based on trade unionism, which can have bourgeois elements and sort of still fall back into a capitalist mode of production. And that would be in tune with the Fremen's, um, I guess, reliance, but also promotion of of spice. They they recognize its economic potential. They recognize its economic power. Um, I know. Again, <laughs> I keep I keep referencing the books, but they there is a there is an aspect where Paul gains a monopoly shareholder power of Chome, uh, and, and that is part of that is part of his revolutionary strategy. Oh, that's like some Maoism, yeah. almost. Yeah, it, it is. I haven't read the books in so long. Yeah, I recently read the second one, um, Dune Messiah, I believe it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, it seems as if uh, with your Lenin read, it's like when Lenin arrives at the Finland station, 
uh, during the Western Revolution, that's when uh, Modib uh, rides the worm for the first time. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That is is a great sequence um, when the Toto hard guitar riff just flares up and their long-haired space hippies are riding on the back of a giant worm. Yeah, yeah. Um, No, when I saw that it was Toto, I was like, oh, shit, (laughs) that's insane. Toto, like, Toto's Africa. Yes. And Brian Eno, yep. yeah. Um, yeah, sometimes the there's some moments, especially in the last fight sequence, the battle sequence, that I actually don't, I really don't think the music syncs up well. Um, yeah. But it's still good, like, music. I mean, they're they're obviously talented artists, so. Not, not to rag in the battle scenes again, but just the way the whole film kind of comes together at the end. It's like, um, you don't really have a sense of the geography of Arakeen, the capital the capital fortress where the Harkonnens and the emperor are hold up are hold up. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess you don't need a super accurate like geography of action, but um, they just blow up the wall with like an atomic, like an atomic bomb and they just ride the worms in and then that's it. They, they crush the Sardaukar beneath the worms. Right, yeah, but especially after like the first scene where, where the Harkonnen destroy Arakeen, I was just like, "Wait, how, why would it be hard to then penetrate Arakeen again because it's been completely destroyed?" Well, I think the implication is that they repair the castle and they put the shield up again. Oh, because it is two years. Yeah. There is a two-year gap. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. That's it. That's one of the parts of the voiceover I didn't like, where it was just like, and then there's two years where they do like these, these like terrorist bombings here and there, and I'm like, wait, two years passed? Yep. Like, are you, wait, what? Okay. I think that's a actually a great point. That for me, the movie really throughout the first act, and I'm not sure like where the clear cutoff is in terms of the act, but it's like right around second yeah. act is where things go totally off rails, like. I'm with it all the way up until the scene with Paul and Jessica when they encounter the Fremen for the first time. Like, after that, things just are, like, this weird (laughs) cobbling together of voiceover and, like, Mm -hmm. battle scenes, and nothing kind of makes sense. It's all... And a lot of weird um, kind of Harkonnen stuff on Giddy Prime that's just kind of stuck in randomly um, that throws off the flow. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I know Lynch did not have final cut privileges on this film. So, obviously, that's why we see in the 90s the the TV two-night version, because Dino De Laurentiis, who... He's infamous for doing that, Mm -hmm. though. Like, he he liked to have a lot of control over his films. Um, You know, it's, it's very telling, like his logo like the importance of like his production company's logo as opposed to like the name of directors in a lot of his films um like you know he's produced some really incredible films and he's given some directors kind of free reign but there's sometimes when you're like this guy thinks he's the most important person in the production of this film and he had tried before to make this film like he just settled on David Lynch because David Lynch said, yeah, sure, I'll do this movie. But he had tried to make this for years before David Lynch. So he had every intention of steamrolling whichever director he picked. It's wild that like Lynch was the one that signed up for it because he, he has such a yeah. strong 
vision of his own. Right. And my understanding is he's never read the books or he, at that point he hadn't read the books and he had no interest in like sci-fi. So I just like, I don't understand why he picked this. Was it, was it the paycheck? I don't know. What's really funny is you compare that anecdote with the anecdote um, when David Lynch met George Lucas and George Lucas asked him to direct Return of the Jedi. Right. I had the salad and it was really bad and he kept meant he he said something about a wookie and I'm just like George you need to do this. You need to this is your baby. <laughs> <laughs> and that was for yeah, Return of the Jedi. So I mean and then he just does this movie anyway. Yeah, that's, I I mean literally and I the get next it. Year. Like obviously start yeah, the next year. But I, I'm, he's right there, right? right? Like Star Wars is George Lucas's baby. And then uh, Irving Kirshner, who takes over, he's kind of more of a director for hire anyway. Uh, like, and Ri- he's not hes not a well, David Lynch. Richard Marquand directed Return of the Jedi. He, right, he, right. I'm thinking he was, of Empire Strikes He was even Fox. more of a director for yeah. hire than Kirshner was. Right, right. Um, yes. That's true. But yeah. Film knowledge, folks. Star Wars. <laughs> Star Wars has taken over this discussion. Um, Disney's coming for Dune next. <laughs> Disney's got shooters, folks. Got a random aside here, but did you know that they actually handed out a pamphlet before the theatrical screenings of the film, trying to explain things? Oh my god, that's 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 how you know like you fucked up. Like when you hand a pamphlet out to say this is how this is how these characters work, this is how this story oh works, god, this is the that's... the milieu. Like, <laughs> yeah, I remember hearing that, but. I want to find one of those on eBay now. I want to find one of those pamphlets. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Look for them. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if, yeah, I'll see if I can find a copy of one somewhere. Like, you can definitely, I've copy. seen them for sure. We can, you can probably at least yeah. download a PDF. Yeah, I bet. I'll, I'll look into that. Show notes, folks. Show notes. The, the paid, the ones you have to pay for, though. Sorry, folks. <laughs> the ones on our Patreon. Hell yeah. <laughs> I will say, I think like Sting was kind of, wasted like in this film like sting's a great actor he's been in plenty of films like what i'm not sure if this is his first one but um he's in he's in a lot of uh guy Ritchie films i think he's in i think he's in lock stock and two smoking barrel or the other one that has a one name title where brad pitt plays um a roma boxer i always forget the title snatch Snatch, yes. Um, I think he's in either one or both of those. Um, so, like, he had... And, of course, that's after this. But, um, like, he has some acting chops. Sure. And I just was like... I don't know. He has maybe five lines, and he, he just gets bested in a fight. A very brutal fight where, like, a, a, a knife is put, like, up his throat into his mouth. Yeah. Um one of the one of the plot lines there was that the the Baron Harkonnen was trying to introduce um Fade's brother um Raban as as like the ogre who will squeeze Arrakis and, and be a tyrant, but then he'll elevate Fade as this false messiah that will overthrow um Raban. So the, the, there's a little bit of depth that they could have gotten into there, but like I mean, with the runtime already over two hours. Uh, they could they couldn't really explore Fade's character arc, right, right, yeah. But he's a nice foil to to Paul. One thing that was a little rough, I think, where was the I don't know what you call it, but like the the green screen for the ships. Um, as cool as the 
ship designs where the the company um, ships that the navigators would fold space around. Um, some some of the other scenes, like where the the little land speeder ornithopter was flying over the desert, were kind of rough. Yeah, and even like the green screen scenes when they were on the worms, those were kind of rough as well. Yeah, I mean, I think special effects overall in this movie blanket just don't hold up, largely yeah. speaking. Yeah, there's that other effect. I actually kind of liked it, but I liked it because of how bad it was. It was when they have their personal shields. <laughs> they they can. Oh yeah. my god, I love the personal shields. Holy shit! Yeah, they, yeah. polygons, baby. It is. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I liked it for how bad it was, but like it, it kind of this weird distortion that like is completely you cannot see through it. It's like op- this opaque wall in front of you. The sound effect was good. And actually, the movie was nominated for an Oscar for sound. That's interesting. So that that would encompass like the sound effects, but not the score. Right. Yeah, it's like sound editing, sound mixing. Yeah, and that and they did that well. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's 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 tough in any action film, especially sci-fi action films. Um, yeah, um, there are a lot of dogs. I appreciated the <laughs> dogs. There were in the Emperor's palace or whatever you want to call it there were like a bunch of pit bulls no um bulldogs there were a bunch of bulldogs english bulldogs there's a bunch of dogs in the emperor's throne room but then yeah in the atreides household they have little pugs they have a pug i think it's just a singular pug i don't know i mean maybe in the books it's a bunch but cooper pointed this out the pug lives throughout the entire movie it shows up in the end yeah that's right, folks. If you like movies where dogs live, not a single one dies. And that one cat. I mean, we never know what happens to it, but I assume it lives. I don't know. Our past guests from the, from the episode just before this one, Molly, would be happy with this movie because the dog lives. Yeah, it's true. The dog lives, folks. Um, I did appreciate there was a shout out to Space Italian Americans yes. in this film. Yes, there is. Um, some character says the word vendetta brad, do you remember brad dorif who is yes. the mentat which is the human computer uh in service of baron harkonnen brings the message from leto atreides to duke harkonnen or baron harkonnen and he says the duke is keeping up the vendetta using the old language yeah he says using the ancient tongue and I was like, well, Vendetta is Italian, yes. so they're all space Italians. That's incredible. Yes. Um, which is, is meta, considering uh, Dino De Laurentiis is, is Italian. Mm, yes. I don't know if that Vendetta thing is from the book, so maybe he stuck that in there. <laughs> <laughs> I think it actually is in the books. But he definitely focused on it because it's Italian. His pro-Italian bias. Yeah, he was like, in this this book that's, you know, hundreds of pages long, we really need to use the word vendetta. In this. That is one thing this movie did well. Um, a lot of the voiceover lines that are kind of trippy and surreal during the trippy and surreal visual sequences are direct lines from the book, which is, hmm. I guess, an appropriate place to put interior monologue in a movie. Yeah. I did like the those those sequences on on the whole, um, especially the ones with like the baby. Oh yeah, that's pretty good. Um, the the fetus of uh, who had gone to become Aaliyah, Paul's sister. I had a b- good point about that. Can- the forms of Canley. That was one of my favorite scenes with the Baron. He's like, 
when he gets pissed, he gets the note back from Duke Leto, and he's like, or Piter's telling him that he rejected his like forms of Canley, which they have this whole. It's almost like a duel right. system where like there's this honorary way to participate in a duel in their society, and those are the forms of Canley that are obeyed. And that that's a that's a good um, duel kind of parallel um, line throughout the whole movie. Uh, political and physical violence, how they how they interact and how one, um, I guess, causes the other, but how, how political violence begets um, physical violence, begets warfare. There's like a civility to yeah. it as well. <laughs> yeah, there, there is. Um, I mean, it, it's very much overtly imperialism yeah. in the name of obtaining a resource, in the name of, of subjugating people. They mentioned putting Arakeen under martial law at one point, the Atreides, the good guys. Oh, yeah. They, they, when there's a security mm. breach, they're like, oh, yeah, don't worry. Security breach contained. Arakeen's under martial law. We're safe. Um, but that, that kind of repression only begets... the it, it eventually blows up in their faces, quite literally. I thought it was interesting that the Harkonnen also used, like, suicide bombers. Um, because... I mean, obviously, the the Atreides are the the more like civilized um, neolibs, neoliberal house, and then there's the Harkonnens who are who are kind of more um, archaic in, in in how they rule and how they um, present themselves. Um, but it was, but I thought it was interesting that they also that they use like the suicide tactics De- death life is very cheap in this universe it's it has that very distinctly medieval feeling yeah. like um neo-feudal for sure yeah and i think that arts the forms of canley and the civility there also arts kind of like hearkening back to that very romantic sort of period. yeah it's, it's playing at this romantic period that um kind of never really existed and only exists in in people's minds as a, as a construct and, and for them is very much a construct too and I think that's even present in the set design because you'll notice there's very like one of the scenes where they introduce Gurney and Dr. Huey as well as uh, Thufir. Uh, um, the the room is very, it's like carved entirely out of wood and it's yeah. very ornate and there's a baroqueness to it in this very futuristic world that where there's space travel. They sell wood paneling yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's really wild. <laughs> even within the ornithopter yes. in that yes. kind of test flight, you'll notice in the background that there's a kind of quilted pattern or quiltedness yeah. texture on the inside of the spaceship itself. Rather than like a sleek metal kind of vibe to it, it's kind of ornate and has a mm-hmm. sort of um, there's like an anachronistic element yeah and even in the very titles they're using right like they're they're dukes and they're barons and there's there's a friggin' emperor um a friggin' emperor a friggin' emperor (laughs) hey hey i'm I'm, I'm emperor over here (laughs) you wanted the spice you like it a spice you wanted the spicy meatball (laughs) we've we've got mustache twirling villains we got everything um (laughs) yeah it's it's this syncretic blend of I don't want to say fantasy, but like medievalism with science fiction, which is is less common than the sci- the fantasy sci-fi blend that is a Star Wars or is kind of a Star Trek or is um I don't know mo- most sci-fi properties that are coming out now like Marvel or something is is a blend of fantasy and science fiction, whereas this is a blend of sci- hard science fiction and 
medieval cutthroat um, reality. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, that about does it for the movie. Um, for workers of note, uh, we have a few individuals here. Um, I mentioned previously that I, I appreciated the, the cast of this film. Uh, the casting director is Jane Jenkins. Uh, kudos to her. Um, a lot of the other um, behind-the-scenes um, special effects I appreciated as well. Um, we have the creature creator, which I would assume is for the, the guild um, monster guy yeah, probably thing. Um, yeah, and probably the worms um, is Carlo Rambaldi, um, who is pretty famous in the field of special effects and, and creature design. Um, he created E.T. Whoa. Uh, the alien for E.T. Yeah, Steven Spielberg. That's a big hit. He also did the creature design for the movie Possession by Zulowski. I just yes. did an episode on. That's right. Yeah, that is that is an incredible film. Um, I had actually seen that film on like VHS at in college. And then um, in the last few years, they've actually released uh, a DVD and if not, maybe a Blu-ray. Um, but for a while, it was it was a really tough film to find. Yeah, I, br- I bought the uh, Mondo release. Nice. Blu-ray. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, great film. Sam Neill yes. um, is in that film, one of his non-Jurassic Park films. Definitely check it out, folks. Uh, we also have uh, mechanical special effects, Kit West, which have has to have contributed to the um, to the Guild Navigator as well. Um, we have suit development for the still suit, uh, Don Post, and suit construction for the for the still suit, including Linda Frubes, Teresa Burkett. Um, and the master foamsman for the still suit as well, William Bryan. Yeah, and then we have uh, our last individual here, Mark Siegel. Um, he is credited as the head of construction for the still suit, but he is uncredited for the uh, as for sculpting um, as a creature maker and a puppeteer. So a uh, special shout out to Mark Siegel. Yeah, that's quite a number of different things that he's uncredited for so yeah, yeah so kudos, kudos to his, his labor <laughs> there yeah um, um so uh yeah nick who would you recommend this movie to? besides everyone um <laughs> anyone who's sick of star <laughs> wars because this this is probably the most well-known um sci-fi thing outside of star wars and star trek but uh it, it's it's that prominent for a reason um our woke recommendation would be for millennials who need to get their survivalist shit together uh this mythos um is well needed for the uh coming water wars folks um i believe there was a piece in the new york times recently about um what that will look like so um i don't advocate reading the new york times (laughs) but uh you know check out um kind of you know the the politics of water and what that will look like in in the future um or don't if you want to sleep we need to get elon musk to invent the still suit we need to get daddy elon to (laughs) invent that kind of that pump in action (laughs) that drives the the filters and the suits and our bespoke recommendation is for anyone remotely interested in trying acid like uh, there's some trippy sequences in there which are which are pretty dope yeah, I like the shot where, like, the moon blows up, or I don't know what that was, but, like, there's a planet that, like, breaks in pieces. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that was definitely the moon. It was the moon? Okay. Because yeah, gotcha. I think yeah. uh, 
Paul gets one of his names from from the second moon, Uso. No, it's Moadib is the name of the mouse shadow on the second right. moon. Right, Uso means strength. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, the mouse shadow. I I was I was into that. I was like, damn, that's cool. That's a. Uh, <laughs> I don't understand any of this, but I was like... The, the mouse goes to the moon because it's made of cheese. <laughs> um, but Cooper, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, we love to have you, and we'll love to have you again in a future episode. Yeah, absolutely. Would love to do this. I love movies. I review them on my podcast, so I, I love doing this shit and analyzing them from any... Whether it be postmodern perspective or Marxist or whatever the case may be. Like, there's... You know, I may... Depending on the film, I made, you know do a different sort of take on it i'm not always doing the specific marxist or anarchist or whatever take i'm just kind of like whatever the film is laying out there i'll change up my approach yeah no that that totally yeah. fits especially with the kind of crappier fare that we try to look for but um it's <laughs> not that this is crappy <laughs> but the the more maligned fare that we kind of look for yeah Thanks for coming on, Coop, and we'll definitely have you on again. Uh, just uh, think of another uh, well-maligned film that uh, that you have a love for, and uh, it'll be perfect for this podcast. Hell yeah. I think we're even mentioning, like, Batman versus Superman yes. might be we might have to. a good one. Because we, we've done Justice League, yeah. but we haven't done Batman. We need to do Batman yep. versus Superman. Yeah. Because my, my BVS takes are... They're spicy. <laughs> yeah <laughs> good good they are yeah, correct exactly. the that, that's that's the energy we like <laughs> most importantly hell yeah well thank you folks we'll um we'll see you next time all right see you next week folks ciao